Hello there, this is SIPREP, BFBS Radio's weekly discussion on the defence issues that affect you every week. I'm Christopher Lee, and Mary's in the hut on a warm and windy afternoon in London town. You are very welcome. Well, in the next 60 minutes, Afghanistan, men and equipment, politics gone mad, or incompetent military planning, who's right, who's wrong. Prisoner handling, why it's so easy to break the rules. Is the CIA still in the assassination business? And does the first sea lord have to be a physicist? And do commanders talk too much? And do we believe politicians or the military, if not both, if rarely? Well, we start with an assassination. Another Russian human rights activist has apparently been murdered. Natalia Yestovimov. Now, I'll say that again. Natalia Yestemirova has been investigating kidnapping, torture and extrajudicial killings by Russian government troops or militias in Chechnya. She is reported to have been snatched, bundled into a van and then shot in the head and chest. With me from University College uh, uh, London, Dr. Martin McCauley. Martin, this has all the markings of the murder of the Russian journalist Anna Politskaya, who was killed for investigating similar crimes. Yes, it's a very, very high, high uh, uh, and dangerous task. She was a very, very brave woman because she knew uh, that what she was doing uh, every time that uh, she stepped, uh, stepped uh, really a foot on Chichen soil, uh, she was putting her life in danger, but she was determined to continue. And then the question is, who was responsible for this? Uh, well, President Kadyrov has a militia which goes around and so on, but I'm not blaming him. So it's quite possible, again with Politkovskaya, that it's a group which believed that uh, they should take her out, not directly from the top, uh, uh, perhaps at the intermediate level or even lower and so on, and they decided... Uh, to take her out because she was becoming a nuisance and the suspicion would be that she was reporting on kidnapping and torture which involved somebody higher up so therefore somebody lower down said, right, we'll take her out without the person higher up knowing. In other words, without, for example, and we're not just talking about Putin uh, being the higher up, who probably had no idea that this sort of thing might happen, but it could be what even sort of colonel, general level. Even below that even below that, because uh, um, Chechnya and Ingushetia, which borders on it, where there's a lot of... uh, That's where her body was dumped. Yes. uh, ...is now under the control of President Kadyrov of Chechnya. And Moscow, more or less, has handed uh, security over to the Chechens. uh, And they are quite violent, uh, and there's been a lot of uh, uh, policemen, servicemen and others being uh, murdered, and civilians being murdered as well. And it's an extremely dangerous place, and one can say that the perpetrators almost certainly are local people, perhaps unknown to, uh, to uh, President Kadyrov and unknown to, pres- uh, to uh, President Medvedev. What does it tell us about our suspicions of Russian security forces? They don't control. They don't control. Increasingly, uh, Moscow does not control the security of the North Caucasus. He's being handed over to Kadyrov, and he is, uh, his brutality or his militias are so brutal that they're provoking... Uh, a lot of opposition, and the, uh, if you like, terrorism or if you like, uh, freedom fighters are spreading from Chechnya into Ingushetia and into Kabardino-Balkaria and other, Adigay, other republics around there, and the locals who don't want this violence say that the reason why this violence is increasing is because of the actions of Kadyrov and the Russians who are trying to impose their authority by very brutal methods, because if somebody's killed, they go in and try and find who was responsible, and they arrest various people, uh, and the locals say those people are innocent, and then you 
build up resentment, uh, and then the the locals go and join the uh, uh, the uh, terrorists. Right. Let's go to another difficult area, Afghanistan. It's been going on this week, has it not? The uh, chief of the general staff says we need more boots on the ground and certainly from his own experience, more helicopters into the international pool. Public opinion in the United Kingdom seems split over the operation in Afghanistan at home. A poll by the BBC World Service and The Guardian put opposition at just 47% with 46% supporting it. That's quite tight and allow 3% either way uh, for those figures. It's in a week that has seen the repatriation of soldiers killed in Helmand province and the debate on the streets and in Parliament has raged. Jamie Gordon reports. When news of the deaths became public, a significant political operation began. Last weekend, Prime Minister Gordon Brown spoke exclusively to BFBS and said Operation Panther's Claw would continue, but he reassured the forces community that despite the tragic loss of life, the operation in Afghanistan was vital for long-term national security. In the border areas of Pakistan and Afghanistan, we can clear terrorist networks and make the streets of Britain safe for the people of our country. And so this is a patriotic duty. There is a clear strategy. On Monday, Secretary of State for Defence Bob Ainsworth, in his first question session since being promoted, gave a reasonably sure-footed performance and defended the operation in Helmand. This last week has been a hard week for those serving in theatre, but their resolve is incredible. In the face of these tough times, they're determined to get on with their mission, and in the teeth of heavy resistance, they are making progress. I'd like to urge colleagues on all sides of the House to be unfailing in our support for them. They deserve no less. The debate then turned to the numbers on the ground and the provision of the right equipment, particularly helicopters. The government's position was that there had been a 60% increase in the numbers of helicopters in the region in the last two years and that capability had been increased by 84%. But Conservative leader David Cameron said that wasn't good enough. If you do a desktop search on how many helicopters and troop-carrying helicopters different NATO countries have. You come up with a very significant number, and then you see what's actually in Afghanistan, uh, and it's a much less significant number. But I'd like to see a real effort by the government to get around every single NATO capital to put the maximum amount of pressure on um, to beg, borrow, or frankly, steal. Nick Clegg, the Liberal Democrat leader, criticised British strategy in Afghanistan as overambitious in aim and under-resourced in practice, although former Lib Dem leader Paddy Ashdown weighed in with an argument that echoed the line from the Defence Secretary. These young men have been, courageous young men, have been killed when they're closed up with the enemy. You can't use uh, helicopters in those circumstances. So they're part of the problem but they're not the heart of the problem. The Prime Minister had already confirmed that Merlin helicopters would be deployed, that more Chinooks were on the way, as were Ridgeback armoured vehicles. Amongst all the political manoeuvring, Chief of the General Staff, General Sir Richard Dannett, remained resolute to his soldiers and the job they were doing. He spoke to the Today programme on Radio 4 yesterday on his last trip to Afghanistan before leaving post next month and said he was satisfied more equipment would come but insisted additional troops were needed. Well, we're building our resources up. Um, in terms of equipment, we've got a plan to increase the amount of campaign equipment we've got. It's probably not moved as fast as I would like it to have moved, but we are increasing the numbers. I would like to get more energy behind it if, if, if we possibly can. I mean, troop numbers is a relatively emotive issue. I've said before, we can have effect where we have boots on the ground. I don't mind whether those feet in those boots are British, American or Afghan, but we need more to have the persistent effect to give the people confidence in us. That's the top line and the bottom line. When news of the deaths became... Jamie Gordon.
uh, ending that report. Now, joining me at the separate round table, um, Christopher Walker, the Chief Foreign Correspondent of uh, Global Radio News, Royal Marine Major General Julian Thompson, <coughs> and the Head of Defence and Security Studies at the University of Salford, Professor Eric Grove. First question, gentlemen. I mean, listening to all that, everything that um, we heard from the CGS and uh, we've heard from David Cameron and Paddy Ashdown uh, and the Prime Minister, are we all clear, is everybody clear around this table, what the objective is in Afghanistan? No. Because That's the, Martin McCauley. This is the key thing. Uh, what is the objective? Uh, there seem to be two objectives. One's military, subduing the Taliban. The other is to regenerate and develop Afghanistan to the state of, if you like, a developed country in, say, 50 years' time. And these two conflict. Uh, and I think that's one of the weaknesses over the last three or four years, is that the, uh, the key mission uh, has not been clear. The government, the politicians have not been clear. Uh, what are we in this for? Uh, is it purely military? Or is it, uh, it is civilian as well? Or is it a mixture of both? Gillian Thompson. Well, certainly the military people I've spoken to, you know, brigadiers and people like that, are clear what they're trying to do, and, and, and they realise that it's not going to be won solely by military force. But they also realise that you have to have a military operation to clear the area of the Taliban before you can start putting in things like dams and roads and, and doing the civilian projects, because otherwise, if you put those in without military force... The minute you turn your back and go away, the Taliban come in and either destroy it or kill all the people who've allowed it to happen or take control of the air. So, in fact, it's a, it's a, it's a step, a side-by-side -side operation. The aim, as I see it, and I'm sure that most of the military that I've talked to also understand this, is to eventually hand over to a government which can run the country... Um, I won't say necessarily along democratic lines, but going to run it without the Taliban, without terrorism. A, gov a government that's strong enough to stay in power, which will mean it will probably have to act in ways that many people in the West would dislike, and is also not anti-Western in orientation and will not give safe haven to jihadi terrorists. So are you saying you understand what... We're supposed to be doing in Afghanistan. Well, I think I do, but I don't think the government's helped very much in, 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 in explaining this. I mean, I, I've been getting really rather frustrated at much of the reporting of the, of the sad deaths of the soldiers. One expects casualties in heavy fighting. It would help if it was explained what the heavy fighting was for, a bit more detail, how many Taliban are being killed, how many we think we've killed, what attrition we seem to have inflicted on these people, have we expanded areas of control? If the, this was explained properly, I think people would be a lot clearer about what was going on. Christopher Walker. I think the best clue actually came from uh, President Barack Obama, who was giving a, a long interview the other day Sky. to Sky Television, in which I thought the very interesting paragraph was he said, basically, we're looking towards the election at the uh, end of August, and then there's going to be a review. And it may not be more military that's going in there, but development. And the key phrase was, we've got to find another crop but the opium poppies, which are being used to finance the Taliban. And quite fascinatingly, in another part of Afghanistan, it's just emerged that saffron is suddenly shooting up in value, whereas opium poppies are going down in value. And there's an enormous differentiation. And if they can get some way the farmers there growing something different... It's the only hope. Militarily, I think we'd be here, I've heard some officers talking about 30 or 40 years. Well, certainly the last ambassador 
your old chum, Cooper. Sharon Cooper Coles. Yeah, I mean, he was talking about 30 years, wasn't he? Yeah, well, I think if you go there, you might add a few years to that. Martin. The the thing about Afghanistan, which is quite different from Iraq, is they have basically the same population, 30 million. But Afghanistan has never been a centralized state. There's yeah, never been there's never been a government at the center. Nothing like Saddam Hussein, nothing like the Iraqi monarchy, and so on. And you don't have a political class. You don't have a density of people who in, engage in politics and, and cobble and so on. It's a country which is divided into clans uh, and uh, tribes and so on. And the loyalties depend uh, go to the tribal leader and so on. And it's split. The north uh, are the uh, um, uh, the Turkmen and the Kazakhs, the uh, Uzbeks and all the rest. And there's very little, the, the Taliban don't go anywhere near there. And the, uh, they rule, rule themselves at present. And they don't really uh, respect uh, uh, Karzai at present. So if you're looking down in Helmand province, you're way, way away from the center. And uh, it's tribal loyalties and so on, which dominate. Uh, and how then do you develop a modern state? How do you, how do you state engage in state building. The Americans okay. have dropped the term state building. How do you now, do that? Listen, uh, um, the, the one thing that struck me this week is that everybody's been chipping in uh, and it started um, I thought a, a, quite a good statement of uh, the resolve by the chief of um, the defence staff uh, Sir Jock Stirrup. That was last Sunday. But since then there seemed to be a confusion of who's right and who's wrong. Men and equipment politics gone mad maybe or incompetent military planning i mean who knows but on the line the director of military studies at the rusi michael codnor um, michael can you clear up the debate about strategy equipment and manpower uh, if you were writing the minister's brief for a speech what is the objective in afghanistan well uh, it's um, not particularly clear it's already come out of the discussion so far on the one hand there is the specific military objective as presented of um, of uh, removing the Taliban and its relationship to a safer Britain through um, uh, through um, preventing al-Qaeda having a safe haven. But there are also other aspects to this. And one is national responsibility for our association with the original removal of the um, Taliban government in Afghanistan. And that doesn't go away. And the third element is our... Um, our uh, perceived need to support the United States in an operation that it originally initiated and um, which needed um, extra support in 2005 uh, because it was otherwise engaged in Iraq. So it's not a simple matter of uh, one thing or another that we're trying to do there. I heard, um, I think it was Major General Patrick Cordenley saying, um, not a bad idea um, that if we said, look, we're going to pull out or withdraw for four or five years, get somebody else to take our place, and then we'll come back in again. I mean, that seems a um, that seems a curious way of thinking. Is it is it widespread or is it isolated? Do you think? I, I think that's pretty isolated. The problem, one of the problems for the United Kingdom now is uh, that uh, um, where we are in our current situation uh, is um, that uh, we have. Uh, a reputation to sustain well that's certainly how the united kingdom i think would see itself um in this particular context and to start pulling out now to let someone else come in um there is this implication of failure which is something the united kingdom hasn't experienced um, in the way other nations have since suez 
Um, having said all that, of course, we are making a contribution, and this must be understood. We, it's not a British strategy. It's an American-NATO strategy of which we make a contribution. And one of our problems is that the scale of responsibility doesn't relate uh, particularly closely to the scale of our contribution. Having said that, the scale of our contribution compared with other nations is extremely high. If you look at our population compared with the Americans and our GDP compared with the Americans, we're up there with the Danes at the very top. Now, helicopter debate. Um, oversimplified, do you think? Oh, well, it's oversimplified to the, to the extent that um, the argument's being pushed that if we had more helicopters, there would be less deaths, particularly in the current situation where we have an offensive um, and with an offensive operation that uh, we're actually going onto the offensive footing, then there are going to be more casualties. And uh, many of the politicians in Parliament this afternoon, uh, um, the ones I have respect for, acknowledge that. That's not to say there isn't a problem with helicopters, but uh, in this sort of operation, uh, helicopters are extraordinarily useful um, uh, as they are for many of the sorts of operations the United Kingdom expects to do but you still have to have for certain types or parts of the operation you've got to have boots on the ground you have to have boots on the ground to hold the territory eventually so these troops are going to be exposed uh, to weapons on the ground whether it's IEDs uh, or other sorts of weapon the problem just doesn't go away if you have more helicopters Michael what do you make of the um, the, the, the story that's often often cited that the, the military asked for 2,000 more um, guys to go there and the government gave them 700, and some are coming back after the election anyway. I mean, is there any... Can you put that in perspective? Um, I, I can't um, give any sort of internal evidence as to, to um, increases in numbers and rejections. Um, all I can say is that it does relate to this uh, fundamental issue of what is our contribution and how substantial is it, and whether... Um, it's actually the scale of our responsibility that is too great for our contribution rather than that we should just put more and more troops in. And there is a question of what is the limit, the same issue over helicopters, as many helicopters as possible, but how many is a reasonable number for the United Kingdom to contribute to a multinational operation? From where you sit, do you get an impression that this debate um, hasn't entirely got anything to do with helicopters uh, numbers of people there and other equipment. It's got a great deal to do with the fact that politically the, I'm afraid, the body bags are drawing attention to the whole dilemma of fighting that war in Afghanistan. Um, the the, the um, number of deaths is certainly um, um, an important factor. And Malcolm Rifkind in the House today said um, that uh, the the House itself needs to um, appreciate how robust the British public are in this respect. And one has to ask uh, whether the um, debates being fueled by the, the media taking this forward on their own as opposed to representing what the public view is. Having said that, if there is uncertainty about why we're there in the first place, then body bags become very significant to, to us and to any other nation. If we're absolutely clear what we're doing and there's more than 50% support of the population in it, then the fact that our soldiers are dying, tragic though it is, and will be accepted by the population as um, that that's what they're there to do. Michael Codnell, thank you very much indeed. Um, Gillian, the one thing that uh, also struck me from I mean, what Michael was saying about um, soldiers dying and therefore the public supporting... Um, 
there is this difficulty, isn't there, in public mind and certainly in political mind, that if you say, look, um, uh, I don't support what's going on, um, then you're not supporting British troops. And it's, it, it's twisted around that way. Yes, there is, there's a reluctance um, to, to criticise because it will be taken to be uh, understood as being criticising British troops. One of the points that Michael Codden I totally agree with, also, I agree with a great deal of what he said, but he made a very important point, and that is that often the media have got an agenda which is beating, beating the government about the head, and that, allow, uh, that means that they quite often don't put the message across as it's been put across from the MOD, for example. So mm. this gets in the way of the government explaining what we're trying to do because the picture is distorted by the media for their own end. I've come across this a number of times when I've been asked to talk where it's quite clear that the agenda is to try and put one over on whoever it is. But Julia, but, when you've got the Sir Richard Downard appearing on the Today programme uh, and having to admit in front of the whole audience that, yes, he's on an American helicopter because there aren't any British ones. But that doesn't you seem can't... to be important to me. No, but, I'm not, it's, I, but it's, it's incredibly it's important. That's no, what you no, hear not. everybody talking about. That's it's the not. main thing yes, that, that only, people have talked that about. Only shows but the not the media. No, but that's, the ordinary that's, people have yeah, been but, talking about But that. it ought to be explained to again. them. It ought to be explained to them. This is a coalition operation. Yeah, with the Americans with 100 helicopters and us with 30. It has been explained. Well, actually, that's rather a high contribution when you consider the difference well, in number of helicopters. Well, you're obviously in a minority on well, this one. No, I, I mean... happen to know what I'm talking about, which very few people do when they talk about this, this issue, in well, my opinion. But you might, I can't say that the general public doesn't know what it's talking about the when general it's got the, the general... soldiers out fighting. Wait a minute, wait a minute. Wait a minute the general wait a minute, public is misinformed by... We, the general public is, is, right, is, is look, misinformed by a media which has got an agenda, as Julian says. It's not in misinformed factually, but in emphasis, like I I said earlier, we need to know more. And it's partly the MOD's fault. It's partly the government's fault for not explaining it. I'm not defending the government wholly. But this issue of the American helicopter, it only goes to show, actually, that the politics of this should have been seen more and it should have been a British one, and this thing wouldn't have arisen. But British so troops the point fire out of the any British ones for him to get into. Can I, can I just... <laughs> hang on, hang VIP on. VIP transport. No, no, no I think I'm stop it, you two, I'm Julian. Sure Richard Denham's given the lift on Black Hawks and happened to be going that way. But I actually also think that we do need more helicopters because it gives you greater flexibility Absolutely. in the sense that when you get out of your helicopter, it doesn't matter whether you arrive in a helicopter or the number nine bus, you're then going to be shot at, and if, you, if they hit you, they'll kill you. So it doesn't matter how you arrive. But the point about it is, by helicopter, you can arrive more quickly yes, in different right. ways. Mm. You're then not so suspect to the, the dickers, as they're called, which are the, which are the Afghan lookouts on mm. their little motorbikes passing, saying there's a convoy coming this way. You're not suspect to the IEDs and all that sort of... You're not susceptible to that. And it gives you much more flexibility. That's why I say we need more helicopters. And so a lot of the logistics can be done by helicopter. I mean, one Chinook in a day can do what a, a, a ten times ten-tonne convoy will do taking three days with a hundred men guarding it and all the rest of it. Can and I, so you do hit much more flexibility. I also agree totally with, with, mm. with what, what Eric says, and it's all to do with not accurate reporting 
by the media that people don't understand what the issues are, because you can't just say, let's have more helicopters, because suppose tomorrow Eric opens a cupboard and gives us lots more helicopters. You've got to have the pilots, you've got to have the maintainers, you've got to have the spares, oh, But I think people understand that. They don't yes. expect helicopters to no, arrive without no. pilots. In them. But no. Dunat himself has scared the uh, government, oh, yes. because he's about to retire. Yep. And I think they're more frightened of him than they are the leader writers on the sun. Well, the army... I mean, he's actually, they've tried to nobble him already. That, uh, Listen, we've got, we've got to move on in a moment, yes, but I want to ask well. you just a couple of things about this. Michael Cottnell was making the point that this is really a US oblique NATO operation, right? Mm. That's the first thing. Exactly. So therefore, to explain what's going on, it is a US stroke NATO mm. task mm. to explain this is what we intend to do uh, and we are being supported in this by national governments, United yes, exactly. Kingdom, like the Germans who went. Yeah, when, when, and, uh, okay, 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 yeah. okay. As a matter, um, this is what they intend to do. It is then up to the national governments to go to explain to their electorate, to their newspapers. Their part in it. Exactly. And isn't that all, Julian, that's happening at the moment? Well, it isn't happening. I mean, you're quite right. The national governments have agreed the NATO strategy, and it's then their job to say, well, what our part in it is this. Uh, but I think that, that, that though they sometimes try, the politicians, to put the message across, I mean, I can't blame them all the time, though I'd love to do so. <laughs> um, actually, it, it, there, is, there is sort of what I call radar clutter put up by the media, which covers the message, and that's being done because certain newspapers, <coughs> left or right, have particular agendas which they're going to, exactly. going to pursue, irrespective of what the message actually they're is. They're having a go at the Prime Minister rather sure. than anything no, else. But exactly. can I just say, the Times had a story this morning about yeah. Dennett. Yes. Within about an hour, I just happened to be reading it, there were 80 comments on the bottom of that story. That is the public. They weren't sure. from yeah. politicians, yeah. they weren't sure. from journalists, yeah. and they were very, Mind very you, strong. Also, people have got nothing else to do. And but, but, to, uh, well, that's but a bit actually, unfair no, on no, the actually, blogger, but, isn't actually, it? Actually, the public, the other thing about the public, which I think is important, and I hope that it doesn't change, is that however many people are against Afghanistan, they're not at the moment blaming the military. They're no, not no, getting the no, sort absolutely of thing that you not. happen okay, in Vietnam, where soldiers were spat on in the street. I mean, that yeah. doesn't happen, no, thank that God, and I hope it never happens. Exactly. Yeah, listen, hang on. I want to go to Washington a moment, talk to Malcolm Brown, who I know he's hanging on talking and wants to talk about assassinations. All good stuff. But I give you one thought to either take away with you or quick round the table. We are spending at the moment billions in the war in Afghanistan. The Secretary of State, Bob Ainsworth, says the reason we are there is to stop terrorism coming to our streets. If, gentlemen, we spent those same billions, like pull out of Afghanistan and spend the same billions on home defence with MI5, etc., wouldn't it be more efficient? Much wiser. And I think you didn't quote the uh, latest opinion poll, ITN, 59% of the Brits want to pull out. Now. That's not bad. That's not bad. I mean, it's quite low. Julian? I don't think it's as easy as that, because it, you can't just say we'll put, you know, concrete walls all around Britain and, and, and flood the gates and make the channel wider and all that sort of thing. And that that is a sort of back foot policy, I think. I think the right one is what we're doing now, actually. Okay. Because it actually doesn't... If I continue. Mm. Um, 
It actually, what goes on in Afghanistan is affecting Pakistan and the whole of the region. Yes, true, it's not true. just us sitting no, in our island. Quite true. Yes, Aren't the people who blew up London already here? The, ones right, who right. Blew up London. the whole <laughs> argument, if you pull out of Afghanistan, you're safer, is completely false. Uh, what about spending all the, let's say, 3.5 billions on, uh, on in, in internal security here? No, no, no. It wouldn't have the same effect because if you pull out of okay. Afghanistan, uh, you hand a t uh, Afghanistan over to the Taliban, which will then expand uh, into Pakistan and goodness knows where else. And they're, really they're targeting India and so on. So therefore, uh, and China and so on, it becomes a great incredible. And more and more young Muslims in this country will be so fired up. You know, that I'm, I'm going off to Washington. Uh, hang, on, hang on, hang on, yeah, hang on, hang on. want to go and fight. <laughs> that, 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 uh, wish, wish, no, yeah, yeah, that makes a change. Wish lads, wish lads. But I have to tell you, that sort of thing that we just heard from Martin, I remember hearing it in Washington about Vietnam. That's why we were going there, because there's the domino uh, Taliban theory. Right, now the Wacker Boys, as the KGB officer used to call the CIA's wet department, all seem to have born identity plans, don't they? Assassination or dispatching with extreme prejudice was a pretty straightforward conversation topper, uh, topic at the water cooler at Langley, I seem to remember. Well, just fiction about the old days, we would say, but now it seems that since 2001, the Central Intelligence Agency has developed plans, or did develop plans no more, to dispatch small teams overseas to kill senior Qaeda, Al-Qaeda terrorists, according to current and former government officials. Now, the plans remain vague, I think, and were never carried out, the officials say. Um, Leon E. Panetta, who is the relatively new CIA director, has cancelled the programme, or he says he's cancelled the programme. Uh, could all this be real? On the line, Malcolm Brown, a feature story news in Washington, who knows all of Malcolm, uh, did this plan ever really exist? Well, one of the few facts that we seem to be able to nail down is that, yes, some form of plan did exist and that it uh, may have entered uh, what one uh, official, uh, unnamed official in the Washington Post uh, uh, described charmingly as a somewhat more operational phase, which uh, seems to be a reference to uh, some kind of training that might have involved the crossing of international boundaries. Now, that that rose to a level where the uh, the, the relatively new director of uh, the CIA, uh, Leon Panetta, you just mentioned, uh, was informed about it. When he found out about it, uh, he, he killed it, in essence. So we do know that something happened, but it's variously characterized at two ends of the spectrum, either just as sort of a concept and that feasibility studies may have been conducted. Then at the other end of the spectrum, you've got uh, team selection uh, reportedly having taken place and maybe even some level of training. So it, it is hard to nail this down. Well, as you said, that uh, Leon Panetta killed it. It's a good choice of words there, actually. Um, but um, the previous director, uh, Tenet, and also the um, vice president, uh, Dick Cheney, uh, George Bush's vice president, they seem to have been, you know, letting it move on a bit. Right. The, the genesis, of it, genesis seems to have been that after 9-11, a presidential finding was made, a secret presidential finding that uh, authorised the use of deadly force against uh, senior al-Qaeda figures wherever they may be. Uh, CIA and other agencies go away, look at that, what are we going to do about it, come up with some kind of plan. So this, the, these sort of killer, killer teams, I suppose we could call them, uh, were at least on paper uh, in existence shortly after 9-11. Uh, George Tenet apparently killed the program because they couldn't really seem to make it work, conceptually at least. In 2004, it was revived again uh, by uh, his, his uh, successor, Porter Goss, in 2005. 
and then was basically dormant until this year um, when uh, the, this uh, somewhat more operational phase uh, uh, came about and um, it came uh, to the attention of the, the current director. I mean, what would happen, for example, if the CIA was after an Al-Qaeda subject, I don't know, let's say London, Paris, what would happen? The CIA would tell local government, you know, we're just about to, um, to, to whack somebody? Probably well, not. I think that's, no, and that's probably one of the <laughs> sticky issues that they had discussed and led them to conclude that this probably wasn't feasible in the first place. Yeah, I mean, the, the, uh, I think this goes back much longer, you see. I think this goes back to the 1980s um, when I seem to remember a, a congressional report suggesting that killing terrorists would not violate um, um, or would be a, a legal act of self-defense under international law. So presumably the CIA has understood what its legal grounds are or have they not bothered? Well, legals were another area where they, they, they were definitely examining it. But bear in mind that this is an environment in which drones are circling overhead, uh, Pakistan, Afghanistan, and CIA and drones. Right, and zapping people on the ground. So uh, the, the kind of legal moral ba- boundary has already been crossed. It's really a question uh, when you get people on the ground of whether if they had a feasible chance of capturing someone, that would seem to be one legal boundary. If they had a feasible chance of, of capturing someone, whether they'd be within their, their, their legal boundaries just to shoot uh, him uh, uh, instead of capturing him, that would be one legal issue. But I have to say that the discussion here in Washington doesn't really focus on that at all. The, the big bun fight here is more to do with who was told about this, where the proper channels and procedures were followed, not the legal ethical questions that, that arise. Okay, I mean, is, is it going to be the, the sort of thing that's going to run and run, and it's not going to be, a, I don't mean like a Watergate or, or anything like that, but um, maybe going back to some of the things that we heard in the... 80s and the 90s are something small which builds up into a big story? Well, it definitely has some potential for that. Bear in mind that uh, there's a lot of impetus that's been gained from the fact that uh, Leon Panetta informed members of Congress that they had been deliberately kept in the dark, he said, at the order of um, then-Vice President Dick Cheney. Now, that, that, gives, uh, d- that, that definitely puts a fire in the bellies of a lot of Democrats. There are other political things happening here, too, um, which would lend Democrats to try and dig further into this. They're trying to support uh, their House Speaker, Nancy Pelosi, who's had her own fight with the CIA, and if they could uh, show that the CIA had been misleading in this instance, it would definitely support other arguments they've been making. So the winds definitely push in the direction of further investigation and potential revelations. Uh, then again, you've got a president in Barack Obama who said he wants to look forwards, not backwards. So there's some tension going in the other direction too. Right, and uh, one for Hollywood, one for Hollywood. Um, Malcolm Brown, thank you very much indeed. Um, Martin McCauley. It strikes me listening to that that it's politicised. They picked up something which happened uh, after 9-11, which may in fact have never happened, and it's the Democrats hammering Republicans. And they Is that u- all? I think that's, that's the key I thing here. it was here. far more exciting now. Yeah. Well, that, that's oh, also very exciting. exciting that, yeah. That's yeah. also very exciting. It's politicised. In America, everything now, you're either for or against Obama, and the Obama administration now have got the American media on their side, and they're going to go for this. <sighs> I tell you something. It's always been the dream of the, these organisations. Remember Mossad after Black September? Yeah. Fanning out across Europe, yeah. killing the wrong man in Norway. Norway. Exactly, exactly and you remember right. the CIA... waiter? Yes, he was yes, a waiter. Yeah, yes. And you remember that, um, you know, that know our, old friend, like to got <laughs> our old friends, the CIA, wasn't it, uh, blowing up uh, Castro's cigar and then trying to poison him with a milkshake 
Do you know, I can tell you, I tell you, I read once that the CIA had made, oh, this is getting off the subject and we're running late, um, 614 attempts on the life That's right, of, of, was it 614? Something like that, It was on the life of, of uh, Fidel Castro. <laughs> and I saw a photograph the other day, the old boy sitting there in his pyjamas, sort of looking out on the world, still with a cigar, and I thought, this guy has survived ten presidents each of which supposedly had something to do with the CIA. Yeah, listen, I, it's just one last bit. No, no come on, because we're, we're running so late, Martin. Hang on, I know it's great stuff, but listen. Um, <laughs> there is one point about it, isn't it? The CIA, as Malcolm Brown was telling us, run the drones, that, right. or the, 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 the missile attack into uh, Pakistan. Pakistan. And they're causing trouble. Right, now, is, it, is there any difference between a CIA killing a terrorist, we'll call it that, with a missile... Or with a handgun. What's there the seems to be the supposition that if you do something from the air, it isn't quite as bad as doing it on the ground. Oh, um, you tell them, you know, that you tell goes them that back to the Second Brits. World War. Yeah, London Britain. Yes. Yes. But the um, in my view is that there isn't any difference. Although the airmen so. get very angry that they get blamed for all the collateral But there aren't any airmen in a drone. When, no, but, but, but attacks from, attack from the air okay. drones qualify as air power. Listen, we're, <laughs> right. Wish, lads. Uh, we're running very late. You're listening, I hope you're listening, to Sit Rep, BFBS Radio's round table on the defence issues affecting you every week. I hope not the CIA. I'm Christopher Lee, and with me, Martin McCauley, Christopher Walker, Julian Thompson, and uh, Eric Grove. Now, the start, see. Um, <laughs> Martin McCauley, which is the old East German Ministry of State Security. I don't know, what was it called? Is that the right? Start situated in State Security Service, Ministry of State Security. Right. Now, they've been reading, the authorities there have been reading the old Stasi files, especially on who were agents and what they did and what they had on civilians, not just in East Germany before the war came down, but elsewhere. Yes. Um, so, so, have you seen your... You've got, you, they've got a file on you, I have they? got a file on me, and under German law, I have the right to see it. Do you I have just, to pay? No. Right. No, 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 no. Uh, and I decided not to read it because uh, I didn't want to find out who was reporting on me. Two of my colleagues decided to read theirs, and they told me what was in there about me. 80% was correct and 20% was incorrect, which means that somebody pretty close to me was reporting. Who was that? Do you know? I don't know. Got any I, idea? I don't want to know. Yeah, that but got any idea? But where were you based? In, uh, I, was, I, I visited East Germany... Because you have family there. Yes, the family. I visited on many occasions. Obviously, the Stasi followed me, but I never had any trouble. They were always very polite to me. I had regular meetings with a Stasi uh, officer here in London who would come to the university. He would say in English, good morning, uh, it's nice to see you. And then he would put a question in German, and we'd have a 30 or 40-minute conversation in German. And then he would say in English, thank you very much, goodbye. He would switch off his, his, his receiver. Yes. And he would then report, send that to Berlin. Dr. That, Macaulay has left the room. That... <laughs> <laughs> that that presumably is on my file. Also, the STB. I had a lot of contact with the, S, the Czech STB, and uh, even more with the Chinese military intelligence. Uh, obviously, I've got a KGB file, but I've come to the conclusion I don't want to see any of these files because you don't want to know who's reporting. No, I don't want to. No you. suspicion. Who, who I, I've got plenty of suspicions, but, but isn't that worse? Oh, come on, tell us. Tell us somebody. What was her name? <laughs> I know. I know an, a, a, an East German. Musician who's now living here, who asked to see his Stasi file, and he wished he hadn't, because the people who reported on him were relatives and close friends. Oh, is this that right? because yes. I, I know Germans who read their file and they were devastated, yeah. and it ruined relations. But the Stasi were very big, weren't they? I mean, oh, there's ninety odd thousand. They were even more extensive than the Nazis. The Nazis were cleverer 
in monitoring the population because they got people to report on one another. What's also rather interesting is mm. that the uh, is that those former officials, a lot of them, I mean, down table former officials, are now in government positions. Mm. In, and in the leading lights in business between uh, East Ge- between Germany and Russia in Gazprom, mm. and this this new pipeline under the Baltic is run by ex Stasi and ex KGB men, uh, and the Germans say that's great. They know one another, and who better? Well, Russia's run by the ex KGB men. business. Tommy Merkel's from the East. Perhaps she's ex Stasi too. Uh, no, no, no. She was a friend of Martha's. I don't think. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> and listen, listen, I mean, I, let's let's widen this a bit. Um, I mean, when we think about we always talk about sort of CIA, MI5 and MI6. You are. We, we follow along. <laughs> I also had lots of meetings with CIA officers. Go on. So I presume, I, I presume there's, a, there's a, a CIA file on me. I don't Collected know. files I on Martin McCauley. could be a new book. I also had uh, re, um, quite a few meetings with Mossad. And, and also, what, you, what were they interested in with you for? You just have a conversation. You've got family there as well, have you? No, 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 no. A lady, a lady, I gave a lecture once, and a lady came up to me and said afterwards, you must be Jewish. I said, no, 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 I'm not Jewish. She said, you must be Jewish. I said, why? Why? Because you're so intelligent. No. (laughs) We've never had one on this program. Um, It's it's quite a serious side of this, isn't it? I I remember remember sitting with a guy who'd just been deposed as president from a small country when the man with the one with the dark glasses came up to us in this uh, restaurant in in paris and gave him a small flat briefcase and i said what's that and he said "Mm, i don't know and he knew very well it was his payoff but what was fascinating about it is that the guy wanted the briefcase back (laughs) and i never realized and it was two hundred thousand dollars in that briefcase and that was the payoff the cia had been paying this ex-president in the one year that he was president um, what they were paying him for. Mm. But is that the sort of thing that we think is rather a good idea, in that everybody ought to be spying on everybody else, and as long as they don't harm people? Well, it's inevitable. Well, the Russians had the Actually, idea. The Russians always mm. had, the Soviets, the Russians, always assumed that any foreigner who put his foot on Soviet soil was a spy. I'd because, love to see Mike. Well, you had to get, to be- get a visa as a journalist. They you knew. had to have a driver... And you had to have a secretary, and you had to have a maid, which were all employed by the KGB. Otherwise, you, you had to have a maid. You had to have a maid in your house. You oh, had to. If Otherwise, there was no visa. I mean, there was no question of arguing. It's rather nice for a journalist to tell their bosses. I'm afraid I have to have a maid round the clock in my house. Otherwise, well, I don't get I, a visa. I, I went in various, and you have to pay for it. Yeah, I went in various official exchanges between the Minister of Agriculture here and the Minister of Agriculture in the Soviet Union and various republics. When I went there, I became a member of the nomenclature of the, the Soviet ruling class. And I was treated as a member of it. Uh, and no wonder they got a file on you. <laughs> and you could see the relationship. Mm. You could then see how the population okay, worked. I and the KGB you, want, never yeah. interfered. Listen, you drive in the Zill lane. Exactly. Yeah, the KGB never interfered with <laughs> us. Listen, I want to ask you, certainly yeah. three of you, the same question. I mean, because you, uh, Christopher Walker, was you know, all over the world, uh, Mossad mm. country, CIA country, every mm. other country. You, Eric Grove, all over the world lecturing. Martin, you're obviously a scallywag somewhere, mostly throughout Europe. Did, at any time, did any of the British agencies ask you, Martin, to work for them? Of course. What would they ask you to do? Um, They asked me to act as an intermediary. With whom? To contact somebody... Uh, and to see if that person, uh, the political views and so on, and uh, they wanted information. Uh, 
In in which country? I better not say. Okay. Uh, you don't have to go abroad to be asked. I've been asked no, to, I, to, to contact people say, here. I know more people have been asked net. here than, yeah, they, yeah. than they have abroad. And mm. abroad, you always knew the, the man who was doing it because he was the man with the leather jacket or the dog or whatever. It was unusual, not the suit, you know. Mm. Eric, uh, you always knew. who asked you? Well, it's all supposed to be secret, but <laughs> Go on. I think the answer is the answer. Nobody's is, listening. Well, the answer is <laughs> the answer is yes to both of the security services in context. I would rather not talk about. But they they, they tried to get. Did you do anything for them? I cannot say. Yes, you can. No, I can't. Go you among friends. No, I remember once. Well, uh, not friends actually. In the well, I friends. remember a friend from Oxford who came back for one of these country weekends and say, "Hey, chaps, there's something I can't tell you, but they tried to recruit me." As, yeah. As a, you know, it's usually a history dog. Uh, well, this was a this was a student of Chinese actually. Oh, yeah. right, that's even better. But, but um, I remember once I had a, um, a lunch with a member of the Czech security STB. Mm-hmm. And then uh, MI5 contacted me uh, afterwards and invited me to a hotel for lunch. And we sat down in the corner. And he, the first thing he said to me, that was a very interesting conversation you had with so-and-so yesterday. Uh, a few points here, maybe discuss them. What, they'd just been listening to you? Yeah, they, they, the restaurant was bugged and everything, and they knew everything. There's no point saying, oh, no, 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 I, I didn't say that, or I didn't meet him and so on. They, kn- they knew everything. Yeah. Did you see they're still at it in Russia? I mean, only last week, the British vice consul in Ekaterinburg... Well, he was daft, wasn't he? Was, he was yes, stupid. but I mean, they're still at it. I need trap. Two prostitutes. Oh, the, wonderful. The camera. Did he pay? Did he pay? Yeah, no, sorry. Okay, <laughs> listen, um, <laughs> this program is getting different from what it started out at. But, and if you've missed any of it, any any second of this program, you can actually do something about it. You can download SITREP as a podcast or listen again whenever you like. Go on. But simply by going to bfbs.com forward slash SITREP. bfbs.com forward slash Sitrep. There you will hear more, more of Martin McCauley's murky past. <laughs> um, I'm just going to ask you one more thing, chaps, before we, we, before we finish this, because it, what intrigues me, four of you sitting at the table all have been approached by British intelligence services. How many have been approached by the CIA to work for them? Not work for them. Uh, uh, you have conversations, and then they give you books... And things like that, because they, they had a particular interest in the Soviet Union, and they collected information. They give you these books and so on, and we had these conversations, you had these lunches and so on. I visited America in a in a in a group of Eric people. Grove. Yes. This is Eric Grove, by the way. If anybody's, <laughs> I visited that. America in the eighties mm-hmm. with a group of people. David Cornwall. In a context which I'm pretty sure was trying to sound out potential agents. I think they wow. decided I wasn't. Um, I didn't have quite the right views for them, I think. Yes. No, but I found but they, in Moscow, I mean, everybody had their KGB friend. What about when you were in Israel? You were the Jerusalem correspondent of yeah. the Times. When we first met, I think. In a, yes, in a and uh, the Mossad, were, I, I would say they're the least easy to deal with of these groups. And perhaps they're the only less, that ever frightened me. A less sense of humour. Yes, yeah. I don't think you joke too much with your Mossad man, and you won't have a terrifically good lunch because they don't do that. Sort no, of thing. they don't, and they but start so off with a simple me, thing. They do occasionally, you know, have gatherings, briefings at their headquarters, which aren't where everybody thinks they are in the no. Ministry of Defence no. no, no, in no. the middle of Tel Aviv. They're no. out at the resort of Herzliya, yeah. a rather sort of strange-looking yeah. building. Moshe Dayan's man said to me right at the beginning, mm. "Are you for us, or are you against us?" And I said, "Do I have to be either?" And he said, hmm. And later on, the man came round and decided that I 
wasn't really for them and that I wouldn't be needed. I was going to say, yeah. they usually knew without asking. <laughs> or not me, it wasn't interesting <laughs> enough. Martin, but quickly, because I'm going to ask you about Eric Grove. I'm going to ask Eric Grove about the first sea law. Yeah, uh, in and out of the Soviet Union in East Germany for 20, 25 years, and I met many KGB and Stasi and so on. For some reason, they're all nice to me. And I was never, I was always aware that they could frame me. Uh, that there's nothing I can yeah. do, but I was lucky. I got away. perhaps they thought that I was a possible agent. Eric, let's go. I'm going to ask you about the first sea law, but just before I do, do you ever come across the guy, uh, a guy called Boris Mojitsky? Mojitsky was a lieutenant commander, Trejvaranga, whatever it's called, in the in the GRU, the Soviet Military Intelligence, and he used to go around London at conferences and receptions, and he would always ask the same question. Huh. I won't really try and do the accent. Mm-hmm. Huh. Does the Sea King carry the depth boom? <laughs> no, I never came across And he asked okay. everybody that question. And unfortunately, he, 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 he came across, this is going back some years, he came across the, the, the late and much revered Desmond Wetton, who was, the, uh-huh, who was yes. the naval correspondent of the Daily Telegraph, and the Daily Telegraph was a proper newspaper. And he said to uh, uh, Wetton, um, can you tell me if the Sea King carries the depth boom? And Wetton immediately reported him to some security organisation. The guy came round to the or went round to the Daily Telegraph and said to um, um, uh, Wetton, "Now, next time he asks you, this is what you've got to tell him." And suddenly, Wetton, doing his duty, discovered that they were actually trying to recruit him for misinformation. It's a dangerous game. Now, less dangerous game, Eric, and more up your street. Um, is well, I was engaged in East-West naval talks, remember. One had to be very careful in those circumstances. Yes, OK. Remember Master Crab? Yeah. Oh, crikey, yes. Let's have a look at the propeller in they fact, cried. they had the KGB... The KGB played a certain role in not... I was never told this, but it was pretty clear that the KGB played a certain role in originating those. Uh, Gorbachev wanted, well, the KGB, the, uh, uh, via the KGB, wanted back-channel naval talks and right. I helped facilitate them. Mm. Right. Cool. Right. You all have much more exciting lives than I do. Now, the, uh, Eric, the Royal Navy is getting a new first sea lord and chief of the naval staff next week. Is Admiral Sir Mark Stanhope. He looks very young, doesn't he? He does look very young, yes. Well, he is. Disturbingly so. Well, he is. He's only about 46 That's right, that's right. He's, a, he's been... Tell me about him. Well, he's a, very, he's a very bright man. He's a submariner. He's a graduate. He's the second first sea lord to be a graduate. A graduate in a science subject, in fact. He's a physicist, isn't he? I think he? so, that's right. Why yes. do you have to Oxford, be a physicist? Or, or well, it, why do you become just, one? It's just a degree. In, uh, he comes from the first generation of of naval officers who entered at the end of the 60s, beginning of the 70s, who were encouraged to go to university and take degrees on the assumption that the kind of person you wanted as a naval officer would want to have a degree, given the changing sort of educational values of the country. And places like Dartmouth and Sandhurst, etc., weren't doing long courses, which were traditionally the sort of like a university course. In fact, fact, it, it was a bad thing for the service colleges because our best students, I taught at Dartmouth in the 1970s, our best students were being is he one of yours? Uh, I don't think so. Didn't um, sleep through any of your history lectures? Well, he might have done when he first entered, yes, because we gave these history lectures in the Casper John Hall known to everybody as Sleepy Hollow. And one reason I've developed, shall we say, a slightly dynamic lecturing style was in the attempt, often, I'm sad to say, vain, to keep these people awake. But, uh, no, he's a very good man That's indeed. That's why you grew a beard, wasn't it? Uh, no, yeah. I grew a beard when the Wrens came because I looked far too young in 1976. That was your wife's idea then? Uh, it was my first wife's idea, yes. Yeah, amazing, isn't it? 
But, I think uh, we're finding out here. Yes. <laughs> no, but I think no. I think stand up will be. I think stand up will be a good thing. He's tried very hard in the lead up to his uh, accession, shall we say, to get on well with the chiefs of the other two services, partly at the behest of the government. But I think all three chiefs who are coming in. Um, the, uh, 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 will, will, I think, probably get on better with each other than the Chiefs have in recent past. Of course, we've had that awful case of Glenn Torpy and Jonathan Band not speaking to each other, pretty obviously This is the, anybody who doesn't know, this is the Chief of the Air Staff and the First Sea Lord. Tell me, why didn't they speak? Because, the, they because speak? the first, the Chief of the Air Staff... In is my, that true they don't speak? They didn't, they're they pretty went cool. Through a, they went through a phase of just not speaking to each other. The relationship got very, very cool indeed, absolutely. Maybe it's always been like that with the Royal Air Force. To some extent, yes, but this was more serious. And, 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 and I have to say, I think the Chief of the Air Staff... Uh, was ill-advised to begin the campaign, understandable in terms of very narrow sectional interests, to try and abolish Joint Force Harrier so that the RAF would get a monopoly of all fixed-wing aircraft. He he must have realised that the Navy would have to fight that tooth and nail. This is a terrible accusation you're making. I mean, these people are, you know, the guardians of the forces, and you're saying that it's all an internecine political warfare. In, in circumstances of constrained budgets, uh, it, it is, it is uh, uh, the chiefs, certain chiefs, tend to see it as, well, they want their legacy. I think Chief of Air Staff wanted his legacy, and his legacy was going to be a complete monopoly of fixed-wing aviation for the RAF. Well, tell me about Jonathan Bound, the, the guy that's leaving yes. next Tuesday, is it? Tuesday, I think. Very good man, very popular, um, certainly had the confidence of the service. He had to weather a few storms, not least the Deacon episode, as it's now called, when the, uh, when the, or, or the iPod 13 or whatever, who were, um, who were uh, captured briefly by the Iranians. But I think he's, I think, I think, I, th- I think the service has had confidence in him in fighting its corner. Um, he's big man. A, big man in every physically. Big man physically in every way, yes. Eyeballs the RAF rather well. Now, there's been, <laughs> I think there's been a, a sense that the service has been in good hands, but I think there's also confidence in the new first sea lord but i'm I, but i'm hoping that there is going to i personally am hoping that there is going to be a more conciliatory period in inter-service relations but given there's going to be a new defense review coming up well anything might happen tell me um, um julian i i actually lost quite a mo- lot of money on this appointment um i uh, bought money on a royal marine becoming the first royal marine first sea lord in um, general uh, sir rob fry should have happened, shouldn't it, really? It would have brought a, a, quite an intellect, although I'm not suggesting that uh, yeah. Mark Stanley I mean, hasn't it, got there. Rolf Fry actually resi- uh, not resigned, but re- decided to retire. Yeah. He could have gone on, but he was offered some brilliant job out in, the, out in the sticks and took it. I think it is time that there was a Royal Marine, certainly, um, if, if not first sea lord, second sea lord, because the Royal Marines are something like 20% of the Royal Navy in, yeah. in, in, in um, numbers terms. And uh, uh, through circumstances... The, the Royal Navy and the aviators, sorry, the Royal Marines and the aviators are very much up front on the front line all the time, uh, representing the Royal Navy in places like Afghanistan. Mm-hmm. So it would be nice to see someone I in think, that position. I think there is a trend in that direction. Um, there's a Royal Marine, I think, on a sen- in a senior position in the naval staff, which I don't think has ever been a Royal Marine before. I think I'm right in saying that. Yeah. And I would say that within the next de- decade or so, we would, you, it's quite likely that a Royal Marine will be in one of these very senior positions. Tell me, um, uh, Christopher Walker, um, having worked on... Uh, Britain's paper of record, The Times, and observed other things, and now Global Radio News. Do you think the public actually twig who is First Sea Lord, 
first. I mean, certainly the chief of the, uh, chief of the general staff is, is, is pretty well known, Richard Dunnett, isn't he? I think, yeah, but only recently, really, I mean, that he's come to the front. I, I really don't think they do, and, I, and also they probably don't know who runs the Air Force. <coughs> um, but because we have a different system here. I mean, just you were talking earlier about Israel. I mean, everybody knows who the boss of the army or navy is, In and Israel, on they go yes. into Parliament. Mm-hmm. Our people don't... Uh, but I did see one of the blogs today that we were talking about earlier, which is very, easy, I thought, interesting, which said Sir Richard Danite would make a better PM than the one we've got at the moment. There is this feeling that the country is slightly adrift, and the army... We're going back to Wellington, aren't we? No, Wellington, the first, no I think we're going oh, Cromwell, back to yes. Walter Walker, <laughs> do you remember? Oh, yes. The people who wanted to raise an, an army of... Old army well, his last His last was job a, was in Norway, wasn't it? Yeah, north. He was. And, and he, he, was a bit of, he, was, he was a bit of a wild card. But yeah. I remember when I was at the, at the staff college at Camden, yeah. when Hugh Beach, who was then the commandant, a very clever and cerebral chap, mm. got up at, at a time when there was this talk of, 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 you know, sort of coups and all this sort of thing. And he lectured us all, and he said that uh, generals make bad politicians, gentlemen. Do not hanker after being... And he was, he was whipping us in. He was quite he, right. He was absolutely right. He was absolutely right. Yeah. You do not want this idea of... Because generals and admirals as well, I suspect, and even air marshals, have a totally different way of looking at it. What do you mean even air marshals? Even this air is marshals. a very well-balanced programme. Yeah, <laughs> absolutely. Uh, but, I mean, all they do in Israel is fight wars. So I know. Probably so is I, the think, best I think it would be a very them. bad thing. To, but idea. everybody, at some stage, when, when you have generals who fight wars, um, everybody else gets to know who the generals are. Mm. I mean, we all knew who Stormin Norman was mm. in the first Gulf War, didn't we? Yes. And we knew who Colin Powell was. Yeah. Uh, I know he went into politics. I think a lot of people knew who Alexander Haig was yeah. when he be, after mm. it became. But, but we people don't have are a tradition of that. by these minders, aren't they, from the MOD? And <coughs> so then they're very rarely able to speak. And if they do speak out, they sometimes don't last the. Well, Alan, the Alan West yeah. is an interesting example of a chief yeah. of staff who's, who's, who's oh, become true. a member of the government. Yes. He's the only one that's left now, isn't he? Mm. Uh, uh, all the oh, other the, lords have, have pushed yeah. off for, for better jobs and spend more time with their pension plans. It, it is now common for uh, junior officers or officers uh, up to the rank of captain, say, uh, to retire from the army and go into politics. Mm. You find, I, I think you'll find an increasing number of these now, uh, and they've had their career, and then they go into politics and so on, and uh, one can say the nation desperately needs some more like them. Yeah, I mean, is it... Uh, I was reading somebody in the Times this morning, who, uh, Michael Evans, their defence editor, who was saying that, um, that the chiefs of staff have been told to wind their necks in. Oh, they have been. Oh, yes. Oh, um, um, Hutton, the previous Secretary of State, had a seminar down at the... John Hutton. Yes, had a seminar had, a, had a, a seminar for the future chiefs some months ago now, down, well, at, down at Staff College. Yeah. Um, and uh, they were told, please try and get on with each other better. The, 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 were the, they? The existing chiefs were a bit miffed about it, actually, so I'm told. Yeah. But, but it was, it, the, the, the sound went out from Hutton. I'm, I'm, personally, I'm rather sad that Hutton has disappeared, because mm. I think he was an he was extremely good Secretary mm. of State. Well, he was mm. one person who wanted the job, wasn't he? Mm. But I think that having, yes. but mm. I think having, that, having that meeting is an illustration of the fact that apparently by all reports they, they got on extremely Ooh. well and 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 the chief of defense staff jock um, um, uh, Marshall, jock stirrup is encouraging this i think we are there are, are hopes 
that that they will wind their necks in as far as single service interest is concerned. But as I say, with a strategic defence review in the offing, who, well, who, who can Julian, tell what I mean, the other thing is that all these guys are retiring this uh, within four weeks, so if you're going to say anything, now's the time to do it. Absolutely. Absolutely. Mm. But I, I go along and with... And we've what, also what, got something to say. Or they yeah, they've got something to say, yeah. but, but I absolutely go along with what Eric is saying, and I, I've seen it... Uh, from the MOD, it doesn't help the services if the chiefs are each other's throats. Right. All that actually happens is the politicians rub their hands and, and, and say, well, they mm. can't make your mind up, we'll make our, your mind up for you. Yeah. You end up right. with a sort of John Knott, Dotty Notty's Navy answer. <laughs> <laughs> for Dotty Notty's Navy, people who don't know, was the 1981, 19, defense 1981 June <laughs> Defence Review, which it all went under water, or would have done. Mm. Uh, listen, we're about, to, we're, about, we're about to close this week, but um, I wonder if anybody's got any ideas Ideas and what they think the chiefs of uh, the general staff ought to be talking about over the next uh, few months, and whether the chiefs of the general staff and the chief of the defence staff and the chief of the naval staff and the chief of the air staff ought to be shouting their mouths off, do let us know. You know how to do it, okay? I'm sorry we didn't get to talk about prison prisoner handling, but we did actually get to talk about Martin McCauley's relationship with half the security and <laughs> intelligence people in, in, in the world. That's it for this week. Um, you've been listening to me um, and to Julian Thompson, to Chris Walker, to Martin McCauley and to Eric Grove.